Hello, everyone. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And welcome to the inaugural episode of Scott Timber, a celebration of the great Tony Scott and his directorial works throughout the 1990s. We're going to be dedicating the entire month to these films. Uh, We've got a lot of fantastic guests lined up to discuss with us, some familiar friends as well as some new ones. And so today we felt it was only fitting to bring back one of our oldest friends, our very first guest we ever had on the show. And now I think with this appearance, the guest with the most Hit Factory guest spots. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes. The esteemed Taylor Grimes is returning uh, for uh, for his hat trick. Taylor, yeah. welcome back. Thanks for Thank being you. here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for presenting me with... I feel like every time I come on, you give me a movie that I had never thought to watch before. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days, we're, we're going to like let you actually pick the film, because I know that there are dozens of them that you have a, a strong affinity for, rather than just one that we... Uh, foist upon you um, i appreciate but... it i i would i i genuinely appreciate like because i would never have watched this movie but i'm glad <laughs> that i did yeah well you know it's like you you joined us way back in the summer of 2020 for speed as like our our very first guest as i already mentioned and somehow we're just gonna find a way to to gift you with a guest appearance on every film that is like high octane thrills from behind the wheel of a vehicle like that's just gonna be like good burger like good burger like good burger you know there's an excellent car chase in good burger from behind the burger mobile so it it we were we're batting a thousand still in this Mm -hmm. regard um but today we're going to be talking about tony scott's first film of the 1990s Um, we're not going to necessarily be going in chronological order for the rest of the month but figured this would be a good place to uh to start being that as taylor said he has never seen it i had never seen it before and carly i don't think you had either i think i saw it on on like tnt when i was a kid (laughs) okay i don't i don't know if that counts though i'll give it a half a a half point point. i saw the dvd in the walmart bin oh good it's like (laughs) great seeing it I feel like I saw like 20% of it just from the cover. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you have seen the, the like neon soaked kind of cover of this, of this film on DVD or VHS, you do in fact uh, have, yeah, you're, you're keyed into the aesthetics already pretty well. The only thing left to do is actually see it all in motion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the film uh, is days of thunder, a Tom Cruise vehicle re-teaming with Tony Scott and really as uh, I think many have uh, labeled it Top Gun on the ground uh, and and for for very good reason there are a lot of the same elements here in the plot structure the same archetypes show up as well uh, a lot like that but despite that I will say uh, I was expecting a lesser movie and I had a lot of fun watching this one I agree with you uh, I you know, maybe I'll compare it to a movie that I also recently saw for the first time, an early 90s action film by the name of Point Break. Hell yeah. <laughs> which is like one of those movies where all the beats are, you know, something predictable. It's it's a movie that you've seen in form before, but something about like the actual contents of it, the way it's put together is like unreasonably compelling. 
Uh, and the the performances are really good, which is which helps a lot. Like the dialogue, not so great, but like the performances are spectacular. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was it was a lot of fun, even though you know, like I said, it's, I'd effectively seen it before. I will say it's a very dude heavy movie. It is. It's a dude's rock movie. It is a dude's rock movie. Dude's uplifting dudes. And we will get into that a little bit more. Dudes and dads. Dudes and dads. <laughs> That's what Tom Cruise loves. He loves dad <laughs> issues. He loves dude's rock movies. Um, and we will, I think, yeah, canonize this as like a, a quintessential dude's rock film. Um, but uh, along with Tom Cruise here, we have a, a pretty knockout cast. We've got Robert Duvall. Uh, I will say he shows up in other films occasionally as Robert Duve some, but he is Robert Duve all in this one. Oh boy. <laughs> he is his most Duvaliest in is. this movie. I was reflecting on Robert Duval and other characters he's played very similar to this one, like his character in space movie space movie when he's the like well-worn astronaut that like went up in one of the early uh, oh in deep impact in deep impact yes sorry <laughs> i should know that's what uh my handle your twitter is handle is named after I've, that. Uh, whatever um <laughs> but robert duvall is really good at like evoking this sort of like folksy father figure who's stern and kind of like hard worn around the edges um but has like a heart of gold right i feel like this movie is maybe the first time he really brought that archetype into like full-throated fruition because prior to this he had done you know of course the godfather series and uh and some other movies in the 80s but was not necessarily like situating himself in this particular role as like a man of age, a man of purpose, and a man with like morals, right? Well, yeah, and you absolutely said it. Like part of it is is the age component, which he obviously is not able to give so much as like Tom Hagen in The Godfather. Although like in 1972 when that movie came out, he already was like 55 years old. Yes. Like <laughs> like but the same kind of character here. And I will say for Duval's credit in this film, uh you know, in, in a feature that uh has a love scene between a future couple, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. I think Duvall gets one of the most intimate and sexiest scenes in the movie when he's uh, talking to the chassis of a car. <laughs> Which he does twice, by the way. He does it twice. This it's is a recurring, recurring fetish for him. <laughs> one when the car is unclothed and another mm-hmm. when the car is fully sheathed. Yeah, yeah but it's it's dripping. It's dripping. Uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this goes back to your like uh your thesis of uh like the sexualization of the film all through like the dialogue and innuendo uh just like in in speed taylor mm-hmm. a lot of stuff with this with this vehicle happening and some sexy talk to it but we'll we'll get into it because i think it's one of my favorites and favorite scenes in the film um but as i said nicole nicole kidman's here too uh her first feature appearance with tom cruise one of three Complete um, with Australian accent, yeah, which is like very rare form for Kidman because I don't I don't know if I can name another film after this in which she goes full Australian. Full Australian is she in Australia? The Baz Luhrmann one with Hugh Jackman. I don't know. Okay, if she is, I would imagine that's maybe the only other opportunity she's been granted to do so. 
Um, but also Michael Rooker, who I know you're a big fan of, Taylor. Yeah, I was. I had never seen him with hair, so that was. <laughs> it took me a second. I was like, I uh, like I saw him in the credits, and I was like, yeah, Michael Rooker. And then when I actually saw him, which by the way, his character name Rowdy Burns is Rowdy spectac- Burns. spectacular. Whoever they had to have like <laughs> sat in a room and just come up with character names. They're like Cole Trickle. Cole Trickle. Burns. Harry Hogg. <laughs> What's the Russ Wheeler? I, yes. How much more literal can you get than Wheeler as a last name? Um but yeah Michael Rooker's fantastic. Shout out to uh Slither. Yes. Maybe my favorite Rooker rule. Yeah. And I think the best James Gunn film, of course, now that he's I think forever indentured within the uh, the DC and and Marvel studio stable, but uh, yeah, Slither a great one. And yes, the first time I think I've ever seen Michael Rooker looking like young and like relatively handsome and not just like a grizzled old fellow. Uh, I don't think we need to talk about Randy Quaid. I see. <laughs> I think. Randy Quaid is somewhat well it's weird because like why I ended up liking Randy Quaid is different from why I thought I would be excited about Randy Quaid because Randy Quaid Mm -hmm. in the 90s I think came to be very defined by this particular archetype of like this ignorant fool uh, from the vacation movies from who he Mm -hmm. is in uh, Independence Day like and he plays very much against that type here he is like he's smart he's successful he Mm -hmm. uh in the end turns out to be to have like some emotional intelligence and so i really enjoyed that like it was why i liked him was very different from why i thought i would i also am a person who really really likes randy quaid and was excited to see him in this movie and i think the thing that he brings to this role that he brings to that sort of alternate archetype that you mentioned Tay is um is this sort of like flamboyance right like he has he has something kind of like wacky about him um in the way that he expresses himself and sort of delivers lines and he he used that I think rather shrewdly in this particular role to give us a sense of a person who is definitely a smart businessman, but also can take risks and, you know, thinks outside of the box a little bit. So it it still felt like a Randy Quaid role, I think, to me. But you're right, very against type than this sort of like ignorant buffoon that he is in these other movies. But I just I love him. Love, love, love Randy Quaid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. I have a soft spot for him in uh, Independence Day, for sure. And then in the vacation movies, you're right. But uh yeah, like that that kind of like shrewd businessman who also has like, as you said, Tay, a little bit of like emotional intelligence as well. He reminds me of like a Buddy Garrity type, you know. Mm-hmm. You see him initially as just like a complete dolt. Um, but he but he like is so good at evoking that particular kind of like southern businessman, you know, like who who has success, maybe some like generational wealth, but also like eventually kind of comes into his own and starts to like, you know, kind of act independently of societal pressures and yeah, okay. You've convinced me. I'm happy to have Randy Quaid in this movie now. <laughs> um, if for no other reason goal. than to just like see him kind of looking a little bit uncomfortable in like a nice gray suit and slicked back hair and like a wool pea coat. Yeah. I was like, this is the least Randy Quaid outfit I've ever seen. And if I recall correctly, never once in like a cowboy hat, despite the fact that you wouldn't <laughs> maybe just assume like there's a part of me that when I think back on this film, just like 
draws like a, a connection and says like, oh yeah, Randy Quaid in like a, a suit and a cowboy hat at some point. But I don't think he does. Uh, and then of course, rounding out the cast is like the the final boss of of the film, uh, Carrie Ells, who yeah, again, doesn't really get a lot of opportunities to play this particular type of character. You know, he is certainly charismatic. He's gifted. He's talented. He's also a little bit of a douchebag and a little bit slimy. You know, I, I think what I think of him first and foremost from is obviously like The Princess Bride and also like Robin Hood Men in Tights, two movies where he is, you know, kind of smiling out of the side of his mouth a little bit in like a smirky coy kind of way, but definitely has a little bit more of that like nice guy sex appeal to him, too. He does a lot with a little in this movie. He has like very few lines, but you hate him like so fast. <laughs> totally. Yeah. He has he has a really detestable smile that just feels gross like looking at it and I love Carrie. Fell in love with him I think probably first and foremost by watching a behind the scenes like documentary about Robin Hood Men in Tights. I don't know why such a thing exists, but I watched it and and love him for it. But yeah, he says, I think I counted, he has like two and a half lines exactly. And the rest of his acting is just with his face. Yeah, he's doing good work here. Um, but so this film, as we already mentioned, is a little bit of kind of a riff on the same film that Tony Scott and Tom Cruise had already made together in 1986 with Top Gun. Um, and it also is, I think, a, a seminal example of a particular type of film that we have already talked about, um, sort of outlined and canonized by Roger Ebert as the Tom Cruise picture. This goes very all the way back to like our very first episode where we talk about the firm as a Tom Cruise picture as well. Um, and I think this is the first time we've talked about Tom Cruise since, actually. I mean, he's always in our hearts and minds. So <laughs> that's true. Um, but it's it's defined by a couple of key concepts, right? Like obviously there's like the young gifted upstart who has to like, you know, who who is insanely talented, has to work through a couple of his own demons. And you've got the mentor, you've got the more established, like the good woman who like helps define and and uh, shape his spirit mm -hmm. while the mentor shapes his like skill there's the lore that the movie is ingrained with that we will eventually learn like we'll we'll know by the end of the film what a pace car is even if we don't at the beginning and then of course there's like the the proto enemy who is the guy who starts as the rival to the hero eventually becomes a friend and then the real enemy the guy who sort of like by the end of it is like the actual villain who Tom Cruise has to defeat in order to prevail, get the girl. Of course, it's it's not too far away from like the hero's journey, right? Like the Joseph Campbell kind of like prototype of every story ever written. Um, but there are a couple of like specific details about it that I think are very specific to Tom Cruise and like kind of define this era of his his output where he is just like a young guy still relatively unproven as an actor, despite the fact that he's had a couple of like big hits like Top Gun um, born on the 4th of July at this point too, I guess. Um, but in like the early, like late eighties, early nineties, he is making these movies where he is acting alongside like the greats, right? Like he's doing like Paul Newman, he's doing Robert Duvall um, and Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman and, and like shaping himself into a movie star 
into a great actor. So there's like a metatextual element to it too. But I'm wondering if we should maybe talk a little bit about the explicit plot of this one outside of just like the the sort of like broader details. Taylor, do you think that you would be able to summarize the film briefly for us? Uh, I can certainly give it a shot. I would like to point <laughs> out that this film was written by Robert Town, which really surprised me in the credits because this film is not Chinatown as, as far as I can tell. Right. Uh, no, it's not. And it's, close. The di- <laughs> it's like the Chinatown of race car movies, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, exactly. Forget it, Cole. It's, it's Daytona. Daytona. <laughs> exactly. Um, also, I noticed in the credits that though the screenplay is credited to Robert town, it, but prior to that title, it says written by Robert town and Tom Cruise. And uh-huh. made me wonder what contributions Tom had to the script. And I'm just going to baselessly assume that Tom's main contribution was that he wanted it to be so that when they asked, when the characters asked, who is Cole Trickle, that he immediately enters on a motorcycle. <laughs> I assume that that was Tom's yeah. suggestion and that got him the credit. Yes. I, I think that it's the motorcycle. And then I think also, uh, that the final still frame of the movie is him and Duvall mid stride running, because as we know, you cannot (laughs) have a Tom Cruise film, even one where he's in a vehicle for 90% of it, where he does not have an opportunity to show his, uh, his perfect running form. Gotta love it. Um, yes. So summarize the movie, uh, effectively Randy Quaid recruits, uh, in exile robert duvall who has previously been involved as a car builder and pit crew master uh, in nascar but had oversaw a a tragic accident uh, for which he was going to be investigated and and ran from it Um, so randy quaid brings him back into the fold and he says he has this hotshot new driver uh, who happens to be tom cruise and Tom Cruise immediately is kind of pitted against uh, Michael Rooker's Rowdy Burns character uh, and ascends through the ranks, wins a race, gets a sponsorship, um, immediately gets, not immediately, but very soon after gets into a, a catastrophic accident of which uh, Rowdy Burns also takes part. It is in the hospital that Tom Cruise meets Nicole Kidman, who will be his two-dimensional muse um (laughs) and rowdy finds out that he has some sort of brain damage to which he is unwilling to face up to uh and the kind of rest of the movie arc is getting tom cruise and michael rooker's characters to acknowledge and face their own lack of control Uh, and as soon as they can accept that then tom cruise will ascend to his rightful place atop the you know the leaderboard of the daytona 500 which he of course does i i'm glad that you pointed out uh a two-dimensional love interest here because it was something that I, i made explicit note of just how incredibly boring nicole kidman is in this movie uh maybe not her you know specifically i don't think it's any fault of of her own i think it's just that the movie is more preoccupied with the the relationships between the male characters the drivers the mentors all those kinds of things and and give it to tom just sort of because we need to give him a love interest right it just doesn't make sense for him to be 
uh, to look like Tom Cruise does and not have someone who is having sex with him outside of like a nameless young woman who's in a cop uniform who <laughs> turns out not to be a state trooper. Very true. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I actually just a couple nights ago um, ended up watching rewatching The Departed and I couldn't mm-hmm. help in my mind like making parallels between the two of them because they're both very like dude focused movies about dude mm-hmm. stuff, relationships between lots of dudes and Nicole Kidman's character in this movie and Vera Farmiga's character in that movie struck me as like very very similar where like both of them are kind of exist to you know teach something or expose something about the men in it and in both of them the romance that occurs feels very very unearned like I, I couldn't help but think you know in both of these movies that like were I the female character like there's nothing appealing about these men. They do nothing to demonstrate their value other than being like briefly charismatic and, and conventionally handsome. That's precisely what we're supposed to believe is needed for a romance to blossom. And, you know, these women are actually there to codify and affirm their value like they don't actually derive their worth from something inherent uh, or in their own sort of demonstrable activities or decisions. All of their value is communicated to us through talent, first and foremost, which we can get into sort of like the meritocratic message of the film, but also, more importantly, through the women that choose to love them. Mm -hmm. That is how, like, we're to understand that Tom Cruise is actually a good man, that he's not a Russ Wheeler or, you know, some other asshole race car driver, that there is something good and pure about him. And that is what would attract a woman like Nicole Kidman's character to him. Notably, too, like, Rowdy um, is, like, by the time the film starts, already a family man, you know, maybe because he's already, you know, been the up and comer and proven himself in the circuit and like won many races. Um, But he has like a wife and kids and like lives on like a a nice house, like out in the middle of nowhere. His need for that validation and to like prove himself has sort of like subsided a little bit. And now he just kind of is like the premier stock car racer. Well, and I think Rowdy is a stand in for sort of like traditional conservative values, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's the embodiment of a man uh, who works hard to get where he is, not like Tom Cruise's character who just shows up and is like, I've been doing sprints for two months and here I am. He's also a man who actively rejects going to the doctor he has like a whole line about that of like and you know in my family we only go to the doctor when we're about to die or something like that. yep yeah exactly and then <laughs> when you see him uh when tom cruise goes to the farm for the last time tom cruise walks into this <laughs> walks into the house the wife is like busy taking care of the kids has a literal crying baby in her hands and kind of just like looks up and is like oh great you're here says nothing to him he and he walks in and michael rooker is just like playing pool in a different room like it yeah. basking in the quiet and solitude and denial yes <laughs> completely i also like too that you know you think that this is going to be a kind of a heart-to-heart moment you know where like he convinces him through the power of his words and through like the connection that they both share and maybe like a little bit of uh, 
of an expression of his own vulnerability to try to get like Rooker to buy in. And it just ends with him picking up a bat and like hitting the side of a table. And he's Dude. like, you son of a bitch. I'll like, I'll beat your fucking head. in if you don't go to the doctor, I, I, yeah. Okay. I was going to comment on that. Cause I was like, did he just threaten to crush his skull with a baseball bat? Cause it seems like he did. <laughs> it's that's the language that Rowdy knows best. Yeah. Right. And I guess, you know, maybe that, yeah, feels more authentic to like the kind of relationship they have. And, and, slightly less cinematic i suppose but uh i just i found it so funny that i was half expecting this to be a a moment that was like a character building opportunity for both of these these people um and then it just it it ended in machismo as so much of the movie does (laughs) but i i want to lean a little bit into this before we move on to some other stuff this idea of like the the meritocratic message that you're talking about carly yes because this comes up i think specifically in the rivalry between Rowdy and Cole, as you said, Rowdy's already at the top of his game. He's as good as he's ever going to get. And then here comes in this kid who, you know, yeah, was like, oh, I, you know, was really good at pushing shopping carts around. And now I'm a NASCAR driver or something like that. Uh, And he's better, you know, just inherently, naturally, you know, without like a a crowd, of course, as, as Rowdy mentions, and without anyone else on the track, but he can drive the car faster. Where do you want to go? Indianapolis. But you can't win an Indy without a great car. My name's not Andretti or Unser. On the other hand, stock cars are stock cars. Pretty much the same. Hey, there's nothing stock about a stock car. Look, I'm not trying to insult you. All I'm saying is stock cars are built to run equal. Isn't that right? So the rule books say. So I don't have to worry about getting beat by another car. In other words, all you have to worry about is getting beat by other drivers. Yeah. You build me a car and I'll win Daytona next year. The, the film seems to, you know, hold up Tom Cruise as like this exceptional individual. Mm-hmm. And I think you just described a good part of it, but it also makes pains to point out that he loses frequently, you know, frequently due to his own failings, but also because other people cheat him. You know, later in the film, Carrie Elwes's character cheats him and it, there's like a brief scene uh, where he talks about his father and how like his father cheated him. And that's why he didn't have a car to race in. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of the, like you said, Rowdy's character is, is demonstrative of like this meritocratic approach, but then I don't know what it's necessarily trying to say. Like maybe there are these individuals among us who are just better who are just born to be these things <laughs> yeah. and only having others take away from them will keep them down. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. Tay. I think that, you know, the, the way that I sort of think about the meritocratic message that we all grew up with in the nineties is that you have to work hard. Yes. But that, uh, if you are, a person who is naturally gifted in some way, you will break through mediocrity and challenges and still find a way to be successful because you are a person who is deserving. You have merit, you have morals. And I was thinking about this message as it relates to this kind of Tom Cruise film and why such a thing exists um, and became so well-tread. And I think it's because this Tom Cruise film um, just mirrors back to us so beautifully the, the ideological beliefs 
of the 80s and 90s that really say like all these problems like, oh, you grew up poor. Or, oh, you didn't get a good education or, uh, you know, you don't have enough food to eat, whatever the fuck. None of that matters. You actually just need to be your best self. And like as long as you are and as long as you are of the deserving, you will find a way to be successful. And that's definitely what Tom Cruise shows us in all of these movies, that he is he is this sort of pure embodiment of a meritocratic mindset and the sort of erasure of society and its ability to act on you in any way. To, to take it a little bit further, you know, I, I think, Taylor, what you're saying actually does conform a little bit to this idea, right, that it's like there are no systems acting against you. There are only individual like malign bad actors. Right. And there will be people who will try to stop you through some conflagration of, of ego and and, you know, selfish desire and and just like uh, anger towards you or, or others for, for your natural ability. But it's never going to be nascar that keeps you out right it's none, none of these things can play against you if you're good enough and also you know this element in a tom cruise movie of like the arcana and like the mentor also speaks to i think a little bit of this 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 knowledge economy mm-hmm. idea that was kind of coming into fruition right where it's like as long as you learn the rules as long as you figure out how to do things the right way there's nothing you can't achieve, right? Like you'll you'll earn as much as you can learn, I think is like the famous Bill Clinton tagline. Yes. And so they like they they to to great extent here, they they show this in a sequence in which Harry, Robert Duvall's character, says, You drive fifty laps your way and you drive fifty laps my way, and I'll show you the difference. And shows, of course, that, you know, Tom is is used to driving these indie cars with wider wheels and and you know lighter bodies and he's tearing the shit out of his tires but if you do it the right way if you learn this if you strive to like understand the principles and like get the education you already can be the best and now you actually will be the best it's really interesting hearing you both talk about this because i hadn't considered like the meritocratic lens uh, but now i think it actually makes one of the core themes of the film seem a lot more insidious to me the core message that like the film was trying to communicate is like stop stop trying to have so much control you want to control something that's out of control that's what you said to me wasn't it well i'm gonna let you in on a little secret that almost everybody else in this world automatically knows control is an illusion you infantile egomaniac nobody knows what's going to happen next not on a freeway, not in an airplane, not inside our own bodies, and certainly not on a racetrack with 40 other infantile egomaniacs. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to interpret a theme like that. You know, if you are religiously inclined, you might interpret it in kind of a faith-based direction. But I think through the lens of meritocracy, it's almost like stop fighting. Stop fighting the system. Just give yep. up and, like, let yourself go with what's already happening that's the only way to accomplish anything that's the only way to succeed is to just be you know let yourself go with what the forces are already doing well and if you if you think about it too like how does cole tom cruise achieve victory at the end you know he's already shared this like kind of standardized tool for like slingshotting around a car you know by catching like 
having the front car block a lot of the the wind resistance and like kind of catching this airstream so that the two cars go faster and then turning on the inside turn uh, at the last minute to be propelled forward and and win the race. Carrie Ill's character, Wheeler, I think we said his name was, assumes that Tom is going to break the rules because he always goes to the outside, right? Which is considered like a dangerous move. It's considered risky. And uh, he he goads him into it. He makes him think he's going to do it. He takes some hits. And then at the last minute, he actually falls right into the groove. And we know that that's like the smart move. We we see what he's doing. We see how he's using people's expectations of him being like kind of brazen and being rebellious and then ends up just like following protocol instead. I hadn't even, yeah, I hadn't even thought about it until y'all started talking about the meritocratic aspect. But then I was like, oh, wow, this is... This is actually kind of gross. Yeah. It's a little gross. <laughs> a little gross. Uh, but, you know, this is, uh, again, I, I think that incidental here, right? Like, I think Tony Scott is is a, a filmmaker who often doesn't really have much of a worldview. I think that, you know, he kind of accidentally stumbles upon later in, in the 90s and throughout his career, this kind of like questioning of and antagonism towards institutions, specifically like the intelligence community, like mm-hmm. twice over in Spy Game and Enemy of the State. But... I, I think more often than not, it is it is complete happenstance that that occurs. And I think that as so often is the case with movies of the 90s, uh, you know, popular culture and and sort of like the societal zeitgeist sort of dictates what we feel and believe and and how we approach and, and evoke those particular systems and, and perspectives and worldviews within the film. Well, and, and one of the theses we come back to on this show is that like, so much of this like prevailing ideology this sort of hegemony of neoliberalism that asserts a meritocratic view that asserts that there is no society etc that the free market is really uh what true freedom is that these themes kind of seep into media and the things we consumed often not because a a creator or an artist was necessarily trying to make a direct and explicit political message, but because they're doing their job. Those, those ideas are doing the job of the ruling class, which is to exist in sort of a way that feels a priori or, you know, preordained or um, not constructed at all. Uh, that they just kind of seem to be the way that the world should and is should be and is organized. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, the film is inherently political in its apoliticism because everything is right. It all it all is constructed and produced within a particular time, place, and larger socio political situation. But it it's not it's not trying to give us this message. It's just yeah, of course, something we we can analytically sort of like draw from from within it and as is so often the case. I, I want to talk a little bit about Duvall's character too. Um, one, because I just, I love him a lot in this movie. I think he's doing great work. Um, and we already alluded to a couple of these specific scenes where he's like, really like dirty talking the frame of a car. I'm going to give you an engine, low to the ground, extra big oil pan will cut the wind from underneath you. I'll give you 30 to 40 more horsepower. I'm going to give you a fuel line that will hold an extra gallon of gas. I'm going to 
to shave half an inch off you and shape you like a bullet. And when we get you prime painted and weighed, you're gonna be ready to go out on that racetrack. perfect a fuel line that holds an extra gallon mm. and then i'm gonna shape you like a bullet mm-hmm. and then i'm gonna slather you in butter and, yes you know, but like this scene is really really good I, I don't know if you all had any particular favorite duval moments or how you felt about harry hogg but <laughs> I, I really really like him in this film yeah i thought he was great i think you know coming from uh as as you are as well Aaron a family based a lot in Texas you've you've seen this man before like <laughs> he, he has an he has an authenticity to him i really appreciate that especially because you know given his prior roles you know, prior to this film i don't think that this is something i'd seen Duvall do at this point uh, he always seemed a lot more like professional especially cuz my reference point is the godfather right um so this kind of like folksy charm uh with a rough edge i think i think he executes it perfectly and and i have to give him a massive amount of credit as as an actor for being able to take that scene seriously like you read that on a page of like i I literally when that scene started i thought tom cruise was off camera because i because i was like he's got to be talking to tom cruise he's got to be telling him like what he's gonna do to this car and then nope the camera pans (laughs) out and it's just him in the car frame it's just the two of them um, there's also a very endearing scene where he uh, shoes Tom Cruise out of the pit or says that he can't he can't come in for a pit stop because they're eating ice cream. He's got an ice cream cone and they're just enjoying themselves too much to to take care of the vehicle. According to Wikipedia, by the way, that is based on a thing that actually happened. I saw that that in, uh, along with a, a couple of other instances, apparently like the. Uh, the the rent the rental car standoff where they just like crash the vehicles and just completely obliterate them uh, is also something that two NASCAR drivers were pretty notorious for doing. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the film's best sort of like moments of like rivalry and some of its best plot points seem to be derived from like actual actual elements of like NASCAR lore, um, which is another thing we should talk about. Like just like how ubiquitously popular NASCAR was specifically around like the the early 90s i don't know if it was the same for you tay but like i i never watched nascar but i distinctly remember like having like a jeff gordon t-shirt or something just because like i knew who jeff gordon was you know what i mean like i and i don't know like it probably just like picked up at like a target or like a jc penny or something because it was like something to wear and had cars on it but like i feel like it was it was everywhere for a little bit yeah, I mean, certainly we're we're from in the Midwest. It was inescapable. I mean, Jeff Gordon was on Pepsi cans, and mm-hmm. Dale Earnhardt, uh, his death was like widely publicized. It's associated with like a very specific brand of like working class individual. Yeah, uh, the popularity I think is evidenced by the fact that at the end of the movie they have a veritable parade of real NASCAR drivers um, make cameos. And I didn't know who any of them were, but I knew that they were real drivers. Um, And that (laughs) was I a person who, you know, was literate in this space in uh, 1990, I would have absolutely recognized those people and appreciated the cameo. Yeah. I, I don't have any particular attachment to NASCAR, but I know that it is, you know, 
in a country and era where people define so much of their identities by the things that they consume and the in-groups with which they associate, like it's a very personal thing for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that I, that I was struck by watching this, this movie is something that I've felt before, but this film, I think really, really exposed it and drew it out for me, which is just how gladiatorial the whole thing is. Mm-hmm just like spectacle and carnage and violence and that a certain amount of like conflict and and antagonism is expected that's like why you go and and watch that you want to see cars run into each other rub as i should say um (laughs) rub one another um and you want to see explosions you want to see uh destruction happen and you know the the reason that that has been a form of entertainment for millennia is i think a a a deeply sort of human thing but also like demonstrative of of a lot of society's uh influence that like as a an individual yes i consume nascar and derive a certain a sense of self uh, from it and the things that it embodies for me. But there's also like a kind of mob mentality that ensues when you're watching these things and that you sort of get to lose yourself in the crowd and uh, and relish in kind of like the the violence and and the destruction and tap into something sort of baser and more like lizard brain. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. I mean, certainly, Aaron, you know, like having experienced you know, the fan bases of these things, like it, it is, it's a, you know, it's, it's giving oneself up to a, like an id, a very basic version of oneself. And I think that like, see, this is a question that I have, which is Tom Cruise's character for, I would say the entire film, but at least like the first 75% of it basically behaves and is scripted as though he is a little boy. So I don't know if he was actually meant to, you know, meant to be someone who is identifiable or like who we are rooting for to the audiences of the time. I can't really place myself in in that place in time in order to see it that way. But I, I feel like he must have been. But he seems so childish to me. There's like the sequence of when Nicole Kidman is um, giving him a physical right? It's immediately proceeding when they make love. So like she gives him a physical and he's like, you know, trying to get her attention, trying to kiss her at like every opportunity in this very childish way, not allowing her to, (laughs) to be her professional self. And then when he comes out, he's literally like, why are you ignoring me? And she's like, I'm not (laughs) ignoring you, you idiot. Like I was just lavishing attention upon you. And then the smash cut, like, immediately post-coital they're in this like warm pillowy uh, environment (laughs) and and he is racing uh, sweet and low packets on her thigh (laughs) and i'm just like man they didn't even give like the only adult thing that this man has done all movie is have sex and they don't give that any time it's just straight from why are you ignoring me to i'm racing fake sugar packets on your thigh <laughs> yeah he is preempting like... the animal cracker scene in armageddon <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's used again and ben affleck's very boyish in that too they definitely try to make him like a kind of a whiny brat until he finally becomes a man 
Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, I don't I don't know how much he's keyed into like the general ethos uh, of the the fan base or the time period and, and whether or not people saw him as like kind of this heroic champion along, you know, NASCAR fans specifically. But uh, yeah, it's it's just like funny how we as as a human race have not grown out of this sort of, as you said, like like heightened id. Right. Like this is. I mean, if, if wrestling is gladiatorial combat, this is like the Circus Maximus, right? Like this is chariot racing. And these things have always been like a very populist, very like widespread appealing kind of spectacle for people to check out and for people to watch. And everyone is victim to this. I feel like we've talked about this on the show before, maybe not with you, Taylor, but do you remember, uh, because we go way back, one time we were hanging out with uh, a, a couple of friends. I already know what you're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, of course you do. And we were we we briefly turned on a monster truck rally. One of our friends was like in the middle of just like kind of like a, a, a rant, you know, like espousing his sort of like disgust for this, this thing that we were watching. He's like, this is excessive. This is just like opulence for opulence sake. It's expensive. It's destructive. It like it serves no purpose and it's just like inherently American and vile. And as he's saying these things, a monster truck goes up like a, a quarter pipe and does a full black full backflip. And <laughs> all of us shut the hell up immediately and we're just like, whoa, this is awesome. It shut us up pretty quickly. And then we just started watching monster trucks for <laughs> like an hour um the but draw was undeniable the draw is undeniable yeah it's like it, it it is there you know even even those of us who like to believe ourselves uh you know evolved beyond it there is something something primal about it i guess that that makes it interesting and you know tony scott's really good at tapping into those kinds of things you know he likes visually showing us stuff that like goes fast and looks sleek and sounds cool and soundtracks it with you know white snake and shit and, <laughs> uh and and just makes for like pure spectacle like he is an aesthetic filmmaker of like the highest caliber like uh, there are sequences in this film that are like absolutely gorgeous to look at um a lot of it looks you know kind of like a painting which you know doesn't should not surprise anyone considering tony scott's you know uh, earliest professional life was as a painter and apparently was was convinced to become a filmmaker by Ridley, who said something to him along the lines of like, work with me for a year and uh, you'll drive a Ferrari by the end of it instead of, you know, slumming it in in like a studio somewhere in London. It, lo and behold, you know, he was he was right. He he figured out a way to like take his particular aesthetic vision, make it cinematic and, to you know, sell a shitload of tickets. I did think that this movie was beautiful. I mean, aside mm -hmm. from like the in interior car scenes, which are obviously very functional, um, everything else I thought was really exquisitely composed. And the thing that struck me most was, was the color in it. And I think it's, it contrasts so greatly with the way films are color graded these days, which is like, you you determine first as a colorist what what is what is the mood of the scene you know is it post-apocalyptic are we in a desert is it is it you know the matrix is it supposed to be all green and then you just apply some color filter over it and so if you actually look at you know the composition of colors in any given frame of a movie it's usually one hue you know like one color 
vibe that you're supposed to get, especially if you're in a, a Denis Villeneuve movie, yep. which are like overwhelmingly that way. And I, you know, I, this is obviously like a problem that dates back to like, Oh brother, where art thou when like digital color correction, like really became a thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I really miss movies like this where like every frame has like a full color palette in it. It's like bursting with like saturated, beautiful color. Um, I don't know, Aaron, if you remember, there was a website back in the day, I think it might have been a Tumblr, that, like, took every frame of a movie yep. and compressed it into, like, you know, a, an eight-inch bar that showed what every frame of a movie looks like just by its, like, a little color strip. And I have a feeling if you were to compress this movie into one of those, it would be just, like, all over the place. It would be just yeah. beautifully bursting with color. And, and I don't think many modern movies are that way. Like you see them in chunks almost. Yeah. Yes. There, uh, this actually is, is still a uh, pretty popular practice. There was like a, a Twitter thread that got a lot of attention earlier, uh, earlier, like this month, I guess by the time this episode comes out early, like last month where somebody put a bunch of these kind of like color swatches you know, of every frame of uh, like Marvel movies and and even like the Suicide Squad, you know, like the DC canon, whatever that's supposed to be colorful, quote unquote, right? Because there's like blood and Harley Quinn wears wears blue and red and, you know, what what have you. Uh, but it's it's really bleak. It's really like gray and brown and just kind of like this sort of like matted kind of dreary look to it and and as are all the marvel films right like they all just kind of like there's like grayish like really just muted hues and the the guy who was posting these said just as a control variable here's uh argento's suspiria (laughs) and put it up and it is like it's a rainbow like it, it it's gorgeous you know it's it's just like beaming with with color and I, I think you're right, you know, like Tony Scott specifically would just have, you know, things all over the map here because there are, they're like beautiful, like neon sequences, you know, like when they're in bars or at night, like in these like kind of like small towns, a lot of the sky that he's he's shooting is like right at kind of like dusk. So you get all those really beautiful like purples and mauves and like yellows and oranges and stuff. And and then the, the racetracks themselves, you know, like they, they get mellow yellow as like the sponsor just so that they can have like bright neon. And then like the other teams that they pit in this too are like, like a, a neon pink and like bright red and orange. And everyone's got just like a ton of color popping. And one of the things, you know, like if we're transitioning just to like a, a slightly larger conversation about Tony Scott, you know, as it is Scott Timber is the way that he as like a a visual stylist ended up leaning into the digital era in a way that a lot of people didn't, you know, and, and made something very distinct. Like you think about maybe like his first film that was like really done with that kind of digital color grading, like sort of post Oh Brother Where Art Thou, uh, like Man on Fire and how everything is like deeply saturated, but to like emphasize like the sort of like sun soaked nature of everything to like highlight yellows, to make explosions look like fiery red and orange. Um, and eventually he starts getting into almost like more of like an impressionistic kind of style where like he'll color grade things well beyond what they actually are supposed to look like almost into like abstraction, like to the point where it almost kind of like evokes um, like 
I don't know, experimental film of some kind. Like it looks kind of like a Stan Brockage picture at times, like these like swaths of just like brilliant color flashing in front of your eyes and shifting quickly and lots of movement and energy in all of his frames. And I, I think that it's like, you know, if we're, if we're talking about the conceit of like auteur theory, you know, I think Tony Scott's name like demands a, a place and recognition a, a, in, within that like titling, you know, there's, there was for a long time, this kind of like, uh, countercultural argument of the idea of like the vulgar auteur um, and those people, you know, being like a Tony Scott, being like a, a John Carpenter, a Rob Zombie, you know, uh, God forbid, even like a Paul W.S. Anderson or a Roland Emmerich, who we've talked about on the show before. But I think that the thing that that argument misses is that like auteur theory does not inherently mean that a film has to be of quality or considered like a capital A artistic work, right? It just has to be recognizable as like a unique product of a particular creator. And in that case, I actually think, you know, like <laughs> an argument came about uh, online as well between the Scott brothers, between Ridley and Tony not long ago, um, and people making their case for both. And, you know, even as someone who loves Ridley Scott, I, I think Alien is my favorite movie of all time. I would still say that Tony's the more consistent and more visually daring filmmaker. I think that so often Ridley's movies can feel pretty manufactured. You know, there uh, I, I would confuse maybe some of his output with a Ron Howard or, you know, like a later Clint Eastwood or, you know, people who are just kind of these like workhorses. Uh, but he, he, Tony Scott's films are are always recognizable as his through his like sort of stylistic vigor. Yeah, I think also, you know, with Ridley specifically, like you almost have to draw a line in his career. Mm -hmm. To me, there's like a very distinct shift. I thought he was more aesthetically adventurous early on and much less so later. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I mean, like, you know, Alien and Blade Runner, obviously like classics, Blade Runner specifically being just like a completely sumptuous, like feast for the eyes. Um, but yeah, at a certain point, I, I think he, I don't want to say he got lazy, you know, but I, I think that he got so familiar with the process that he just let the process speak for itself and stop trying to like trying to evolve. Um, and I don't think Tony ever, ever really did that. Uh, he even has like a, a line in an interview somewhere where he, he says, you know, Rid Ridley's movies were always considered classics, like from the get go. And me, I think that I was accused often of focusing too much on emphasizing difference. Like I wanted my things to stand apart and for that reason, he said, I think that my films kind of hover and are, are more of a mixed bag critically and are in the community. Like maybe, maybe someday people will see these films as classics. But for now, I think that people see them just as as different and not quite achieving that that kind of status of greatness, which maybe we'll relitigate here on the show. Do you have a sense of what he meant by different? I, you know, I think that a lot of it is just like that he was trying to produce something within that idea of like, you know, if we define like autourism as something that makes a, a work inherently the, the, the product of a creator and immediately recognizable as such, I think oftentimes his aesthetics uh, overtake any sort of narrative function of his films or, you know, him trying to have a worldview or create like a larger message. And I think that maybe is what he's talking about when he says difference. I have always felt that Tony Scott's kind of visual style, even pre-digital, um, 
feels a lot to me like Warhol's brand of pop art. Mm-hmm. When you're thinking about this film in particular, Tan, you were talking about how colorful it is. Um, I think one of the reasons it's so colorful is because Tony Scott wants it to be, obviously, but also because of all of the logos um, and kind of like all of the consumerism that's all over this movie, right? There's, um, I've always felt like NASCAR is uh, just like a, a rainbow coalition of of brands and <laughs> and fonts and logos and colors and and Warhol. If we if we think about his art, uh, his his argument was ostensibly that um, you know uh, originality and authenticity doesn't exist in a world where images are constantly changing and we're being bombarded by commercial imagery uh, nonstop. Um, and so I'm going to lean into that. And, you know, the the color palette that was used to describe his work often is lipstick and peroxide. And I always think about that phrase when I'm watching a Tony Scott movie. It feels sort of like halcyon and uh, has that same kind of like extremely drenched color palette um, that that Warhol had. And so in thinking about sort of the the work that Warhol's art was doing to kind of say we are bombarded with commercial images all day, every day, uh, and fame really is meaningless when we have a constant shift of imagery and pushes to consume if I think about Tony Scott in the same kind of like artistic bent, I feel like the difference that he's actually reaching for is difference only distinguished from like other great like cinematic styles. And that in fact, what he's giving us is something we're all really familiar with, which is, you know, really poppy, pulpy images that we find in commercials. We see in these figures that he gives us that he wants them to be signifiers. He wants Tom Cruise's character to be read as iconography. I would be really curious to track, like, because I don't know if Tony Scott um, continued to paint, like, throughout his directorial career. Hmm. But I would be really interested if he did to track what his, what the subjects and kind of composition of his paintings during that time would be and how they compare to like what his interest was and what his subjects were in his film. Um, Certainly looking at his website now, like I see exactly what you're talking about, right? This kind of iconography and this uh, really striking color work that is um, very much uh, influenced by Warhol is, is there. I see it definitely. So I'd be interested to attach dates to those and see how they line up. It's interesting, too, to think about him, you know, kind of compared with a couple of his contemporaries who started as mostly visual filmmakers in advertising and music videos like a David Fincher or even like a Michael Bay, uh, you know, who were, I think, known at the beginning of their careers for having this sort of very distinctive visual panache who have both come to be kind of defined by a more digitized, a more kind of like flat sort of aesthetic. Uh, you know, Michael Bay, because he can't stop making Transformers movies. Um, But Fincher, too, you know, like has slowly kind of given more and more leeway to digitization and more sort of like uh, 
not autonomy, but maybe omniscience of his camera and of like the 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 particularities of the frames he's composing. Everything feels a little less lively than what they used to be making in terms of like those color palettes, in terms of like the the movement of the visuals. And I think that as Tony kind of, you know, aged um, before his unfortunate and un- untimely departure, I think he just started to get a little bit more experimental and weird, which is always like a fun thing to see people do later in their careers. Yeah. I actually think he leans into the digitization, not unlike Warhol, as a means to like further explore this sort of like highly expressionistic language that he's operating in. He uses it to his advantage like Warhol rather than letting it become a hindrance. Warhol's work gave a sense of kineticism and movement through things like repetition of imagery, through layers, through collaging. It had sort of like an electric and kinetic uh, sense, even though we were looking at kind of um, plasticine imagery. And I think Tony Scott does a lot of the same thing. Yeah. He oftentimes evokes a lot of movement and um, and kineticism in his in his works through colors and through collage and layering and um, sort of weird kind of like static treatments with the film. And again, to me, that's that's using sort of those those elements of commercialization, of digitization, of like a consumerist landscape to your benefit rather than being bogged down by them. Yeah. You know, I think in terms of like, you know, contemporaries, I think the one that draws the most similarities is someone like a Michael Mann, especially in the way that he evolved during like the digital era, you know, like collateral and then onward. I think he was less interested in like a level of narrative cohesion and making something that was distinctly using the technology and using the tools he had at his disposal to create a canvas that was uniquely his own. You know, it's, it's often remarked upon that like a movie like Miami Vice or even his latest Black Hat, which I think is excellent, don't look very good when you try to like catch a still frame from it. You know, like when you look at some films, like if you like pull a still from a Terrence Malick film or from like a Kubrick film, it will look like like a like an, a static image. It will look like a beautiful frame of like a, a, a classic photograph. But with Michael Mann, like those those images only really look good in motion. It only really looks good as it's like continuing to like keep a pace and to like generate that same energy that he's trying to evoke through all the other components of the film itself. Um, and I think Tony's the exact same way. You know, like you can probably pull out a, a, a clip or two that look really visually striking, but it it only really works in cinematic language. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I think, is why we are doing Scott Timber. <laughs> you know, I th- he, like I, I, th- I think that he's like you know uh, maybe often regarded as like even like the lesser Scott brother, and maybe like you know more of like kind of like a pulp sort of filmmaker and and sort of genre vulgar a tourist. You know, like I'll, I'll use the phrase again, even though I, I think it doesn't really adequately describe what we're looking at here. I think that he should be regarded within like the pantheon of great like '90s filmmakers and just like great filmmakers in general. He's put out something that is very distinctly cinematic and uh and something just really special have either of you seen the hunger his first movie i have not seen the hunger i but i really want to Catherine deneuve and david bowie vampire movie vampire movie sounds great david bowie yeah i've never seen it but i when i was doing research on his filmography that just 
struck me as a banger to lead with. Yeah, we absolutely need to see that along with some other great like vampire movies. What's Catherine Bigelow's called? Her early vampire one with Lance Henriksen and uh, and Bill Paxton? I don't know. I can look it up. I want to say it's called Near Dark. That appears to be correct. <laughs> cool. Right on. Yep. Anyway, the, 80s. La- the last question I have for you both is what do you think really happened with John C. Riley's character's dad? Oh, we forgot to even talk about the fact that John C. Riley is in this movie. This is a good place to to wrap up with this and the, the dude's rock kind of quality of this film. Because John C. Riley will return as a NASCAR driver in Talladega Nights, <laughs> which like steals the explicit like premise and like plot structure of this movie where ricky bobby goes through like a, a crash and has like a, a a mental hang-up and and can't drive anymore until he like learns to i don't know find the love of a good woman and and race his heart out i guess but yeah john c Riley in this really young I, I don't know what i honestly think happened to his dad so just to kind of recap what i recall about the you know the discrepancy there well, the first thing we learn about it is that uh, Robert Duvall's character was involved in some sort of incident that would have had an investigation, but he allegedly ran away from it. That's why he left entirely. Then we later find out that uh, the person, the event was uh, a crash in which somebody died. That person was John C. Riley's father. Um, and I can't remember which character it is saying it to Robert Duvall, but, oh, it's, it is Tom Cruise, I guess, right? He has like looked into looked into what happened, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that the NASCAR report was that he had uh, there was some sort of uh, engine failure or something and he was killed by carbon monoxide. And then Robert Duvall says, well, that couldn't possibly be true because going up into you know the last turn in which he was alive, he was babbling on the radio and like. So it doesn't sound like someone who passed out from carbon monoxide to me. Mm-hmm. Is that all we know about it? Wasn't yes. there also another, is this a different one where Duval or someone else claims that like the coroner's report show that he had like gone into cardiac arrest shortly before and that it's possible that he had a, had a heart attack. That, Robert like, Duval tosses that off as like a presumption um, when they're in some sort of heated exchange. And he's basically like, I bet if you look at the coroner's report, you'll see that he had died of a heart attack before uh, the yeah. crash uh, ever happened. Hmm. I mean, that yeah. seems to be at odds with what he says later. Well, I, th- I, I felt the same way. And then I thought about it more and I was like, maybe what he was trying to say, because this came about when him and Tom Cruise reached this sort of intense point of conflict, wherein he calls Tom Cruise out for being scared post crash and like that he's letting it kind of fuck with his head and that he's turning into this like raving lunatic. And so the heart attack maybe is like a shorthand for Robert Duvall kind of like understanding that John C. Riley's character's dad. I don't remember anyone's name in the movie. <laughs> buddy something. Right? Some, buddy something something. That his father was kind of like wigged out, like stressed out, kind of like, you know, really um, 
really kind of like going off the deep end with fear and anxiety because of this crash that he had been in prior and that the same he was seeing the same thing happen to Tom Tom Cruise's character so I don't know if like the the heart attack is just some sort of like toss away of like yeah he was a stress case he was whatever but I I asked the question because I genuinely like thought it would be resolved by the end of the movie and I was still like I don't actually know what happened to this man well and i think too like part of it functions narratively to kind of mirror what happens with the accident between rowdy and cole right so like what we see almost looks like rowdy spins out deliberately or that like his car isn't really manipulated in any way other than through like driver error and then you know tom cole you know he says you're trained to just keep driving straight when you see a vehicle spinning out of the track because by the time you get there, he'll be gone. Instead of trying to course correct and swerve one way or another, you're going to end up running into them. And he says he shouldn't have been there when I got there. Well, he also says, because Tom Cruise says, like, it seemed like he was doing it intentionally or something like that. And then Robert Duvall's character says, no, actually, I think somebody hit him and knocked him into you. Right. And, right. But yeah. we don't see any evidence of that actually occurring. And th- I think it would be in line with Duvall's character to have been dishonest about that mm. in order to try to circumvent, you know, Tom Cruise's apprehensions about it. Because he does this earlier with the tires, right? Yeah. He says, oh, right. I gave you these special tires. And like, mm-hmm. and he tells him later that that wasn't true. So if you <laughs> extrapolate that, like, and make the parallel between Duvall's character and Tom Cruise's character. Like this could be his own way of like telling himself how to get through it. Like this wasn't, this is the lie that I'm telling myself in order to kind of like keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're actually a thousand percent right about that. Yeah. And I think he's giving him something to rationalize it. Right. And say like uh, John C. Riley's dad, you know, got struck by lightning or he had a heart attack or something happened that he couldn't control and had no corrective measures for um, that killed him. Right. Likewise, there was another car on the track and it hit Rowdy into you and you two hit one another. Nothing you could control. That was just a third guy had nothing to do with you two. One maybe like goes back to Taylor's point about like, just give in like stop trying to control Mm -hmm. everything and and just keep going because there are things that are outside of your control and it doesn't serve you to worry about them yeah there's a yolo message in here kind of (laughs) and you know i guess a, a good place to kind of wrap up the conversation is just in uh canonizing this in the pantheon of great 90s dudes rock movies um as we have discussed on the show previously you know a dude's rock movie is not like about just guys being brash or dumb or showing any sort of like misogynistic or like inherently masculine traits it is more about like a a nuance of male friendship which is that you start the picture and you start your story with another man uh resenting one another hating each other, not really being very good friends. And somewhere along the way, you learn to respect one another. You learn to see each other's strengths and you uh, start to uplift one another together. And I think that we see it in in many a relationship here. There are multiple dudes rock 
moments here. There's the Duval Cruz relationship. There's the Rooker Cruz relationship. There's Randy Quaid helping push the car out of the mm-hmm. pit at the end. That was mm-hmm. the other one I, I was missing. Yeah, you know, that that moment where, uh, yeah, they're at odds and then they're not anymore. And, and guys will be guys that way. Dudes rock. I, I did have one last question. Which yes. is, uh, at one point early on, Randy Quaid says that uh, Tom Cruise looked like a monkey fucking a football. <laughs> is this? I, I made note is, of that too. Yeah, is this where that phrase originated? Or is I don't that know. A thing that existed before that, because I really want to know the like etymology of this of this particular <laughs> phrase. I will admit that this is the first and and last time I've ever heard that phrase. Have you heard it elsewhere? Yeah, I've heard people say that shit. It's okay. like a, a thing that like football <laughs> coaches say. It's like, oh, you're out there looking like a monkey fucking a football. <laughs> I really want to give Randy Quaid, Randy Quaid's character, I should say. Uh, maybe maybe it was Tom, maybe that's Tom Cruise's writing credit. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> this is the 10th take where Randy Quaid came up with a different uh, saying an expression each right. time, and this was just the best one. Tony you look liked like a it. hyena fucking a cereal box, <laughs> or some Always iteration something of something, something yeah. an animal fucking some sort of something. Uh. <laughs> I, you know what? We're gonna give full credit to Randy Quaid and uh, and the team behind Days of Thunder to uh, to say that this is in fact the origin of that phrase. All right, I'll make sure to update Mr. Quaid's Wikipedia page later. we're expecting to see it make sure that it stays up we'll we'll endorse it as factual as well we'll find somewhere maybe we'll we'll host like a blog post that uh that sources and credits that as well to this to this podcast create like a circular loop of of insourcing here so that we we get to keep that there as a factual element of the of the entry that's all the internet is (laughs) yes well uh that has been the first episode of Scott Tember. Uh, we will be joined by some other great guests throughout the month talking about some other fantastic Tony Scott films. Uh, Taylor Grimes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, as I said, one of our oldest friends, our very first guest, maybe our last guest when like 2050, when we finally stopped doing the podcast. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, but uh, as always you can follow us at hit factory pod Uh, you can subscribe for just five dollars a month for some bonus episodes interviews and content at patreon.com slash hit factory pod shout out to our capitalist overlord linda and uh, we will see you again for more tony scott in scott timber thanks everyone 